few weeks ago, a uh, local basketball team won the won a little league's tournament. I think it was a few weeks ago, right? Um, bucks and six, right? Um, now, I am rather unapologetically a Fairweather fan. I know that has like a stigma, for whatever reason, of being a bad thing. To be a Fairweather fan is it's uh, looked down upon. I just consider it... Uh, being prudent with my time and emotional investment. If a team is bad, I'm not going to waste my time watching their games and cheering for them. If you want to, like, that's fine. And I know some people actually enjoy that, and that's totally fine. I'm not being sarcastic, but I don't. And so I consider it, uh, yeah, just a wise use of my time, whether I'm going to pay attention. Typically, won't really watch much of the season games, but if a team's doing well, I might tune in during the playoffs and jump on the bandwagon. And I don't see a problem with that. It makes sense to me. Now, we may have a similar thought at times when it comes to the Christian life. You know, maybe we want to be a fair-weather Christian, so to say. But oftentimes, the weather, so to say, of the Christian life is not very fair. In fact, Jesus says that we take up our cross when we follow him. And so we may be tempted to make a similar calculation, just like me with the bucks. You know, when things are good, I'll tune in for the playoffs. I'll watch the finals. That sounds like a good idea. But what about when things are not so great in the Christian life? We want to make a similar calculation. Is this worth it to me? And especially when we face hardships or even uh, potentially mistreatment as Christians, will these things be made right? Is it even worth following Jesus? Well, today we come to the final set of judgments in terms of sets of judgments in the book of Revelation, which are called either at times are called the seven plagues or the seven bowls of God's wrath. And at the outset, I just want to lay out some kind of preliminary uh, observations. Is First of all, you'll notice, hopefully you'll have noticed, there's a lot of similarities between the seven bowls and the other sets of seven judgments we've seen earlier with the seals and the trumpets. So here... In the bowls, we have a pattern. There's seven of them, notice. There's a pattern of four and then three. Okay, so we have the first four. Are, are, there's judgments on the earth, on the sea, on the fresh water, and then on the heavenly bodies or the sky. And so those four are kind of set off, these judgments on creation. And that follows exactly the same pattern as the trumpets, where you had the earth, the sea, the fresh water, and the sky. And then just like the trumpets... Um, this, the next three, the final three, are judgments on the domain of rebellious humanity, on the area of human wickedness, the realm of the wicked. Or like in the seals, even those three are kind of set off in their own way. So we have this similar patterning here. And then also with the sixth bowl, we have sort of this preparation for the final judgment as the army is kind of brought together, similar to how the sixth seal is this preparation for the final judgment. And like the trumpet, the sixth trumpet is likewise a picture of a great battle. So there's a lot of parallels here. And then finally, in the seventh, we get the statement in verse uh, 17 of chapter 16, it is done. This is when everything comes to fulfillment, just like in the seal and the trumpets. The seventh is the final uh, vision of everything, of God's kingdom coming, the judgment being poured out, and the renewal of all things. The other thing, too, is you'll see a lot of Exodus themes in these bowls, um, as well as we saw in the trumpets. There's a lot of allusions to the Exodus. 
So, all this to say, we have another one of these sort of parallel visions, just like in the seals and the trumpets, now the bowls, these parallel visions of sort of this period of the church age climaxing with the final judgment. And uh, like we've used this illustration many times, it's sort of like if you're watching the NFL and a touchdown occurs and you see, you see it live, but then right afterwards you see a replay and then you see another replay, maybe from another angle, and the commentators are telling you different things. Maybe one time it focuses on the wide receiver, another time it focuses on the quarterback, then a block that's made. And you don't assume, whoa, I guess they just scored three touchdowns. I just saw this, this, a touchdown happen three times. No, you understand this is a repeating of the same event from a different angle. And that's what we have going on in Revelation here. We have these series of judgment that are kind of big lens, panoramic lens view of the course of history and God carrying out his purposes with a particular emphasis on God's judgment in history. Throughout the church age, and especially here in the bowls, there seems to be a particular emphasis on how it comes to its climax in the end time, final judgment. Seven, of course, in each of these series, no less the bowls, indicates uh, it's symbolic for the fullness of God's judgment. Seven being the, full, uh, uh, the number for fullness and completion. And then we see the universality of God's judgment. Every, nothing is outside of this judgment. It includes the earth, the sea, the water, and the sky. And so what we find here in this judgment, as we see it introduced in 15.1, the section that Dan preached last week, in the middle of these seven signs, the last section was the seven signs, in the sixth sign, 15.1, uh, John introduces these, these seven plagues. We're kind of left hanging to wonder what's going on. He doesn't really explain them, he just introduces them. And so now here in 15.5 to 16.21, the section that Matt just read for us, it's like he's kind of pulling on that little, like I just mentioned it briefly, but now let me take that little piece I just mentioned and kind of expand it for you. Let me give you an expanded explanation of that final judgment that is coming. You might think of it kind of like a, a Russian nesting doll. With Russian nesting dolls, you have, you have uh, like these kind of egg-shaped dolls, and then when you open it up inside, there's, a, there's another doll, and you keep opening it up until you get these little small to the very bottom, right? And that's kind of what is happening here. At the, at the end of chapter 14, we get these, what Dan has called the post-pilgrimage realities, these things that await the future, the end of all history. And thrown in there is this little statement about the seven plagues, but we're not given much explanation. Well, here now, he's, that's kind of been locked into the last vision. He comes in and he blows up the explanation to help us really see what all of that was about. And what we see in these judgments is that these judgments reveal the complete, full, unbridled, unrestrained outpouring of God's wrath. Look at 15.1 with me where this was introduced in the vision section. Then I saw the sixth thing that he saw here. Six in the sequence of seven. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with se seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. The wrath of God is brought to its completion. It's exhausted here. It's fully poured out. You'll notice we talked about similarities between the bowls with the seals and the trumpets. But with the seals and the trumpets, there was a break between the six and the seven each time. They kind of zoom in on the church. They kind of pause, take a step back, see what's, what's going on with the church here. 
Well, in the bowls, there's no interlude. It just goes, it rushes full ahead, full steam ahead. In the seals, we saw the destruction of a quarter of things. In the trumpets, we saw that escalated to a third of things. And now you'll notice in the bowls here that there's no sort of fractions. We're not doing math in that way anymore. It's just the whole thing. It's destruction of everything. It's full throttle judgment. So the focus is no longer on these judgments functioning as warnings, like in the trumpets, but these are, this is just the expression of God's wrath. This is punishment. And so when in 15.1 it refers to these judgments as the last, it's, it, let's just make a note here. We're not talking about how these judgments come later than the seals and the bowls, because as we said, these are all kind of parallel. They're all replays of the same thing. So it's not that they're chronologically last, but literarily, in a literary way, they come last. And there is nonetheless some amplification. There's some intensity as the book goes on to kind of stress a different purpose here, to stress the, out, the full outpouring of God's wrath. And so these judgments that display the full outpouring of God's wrath also emphasize, you'll notice as Matt read, one of the other emphasis emphases is that these judgments display and are grounded in God's righteousness. This is not just wrath as we might think of it in our, the human way we express wrath, where, where we kind of just are, are we're unleashed and we just kind of go like off hazard and it, it, it's uncontrolled. But, but here these are, these are displays of a just and righteous wrath that are true. And so you might summarize the overall point of this passage this way. What is this passage communicating to us? There's really two parts. First, the idea is this, that that God will pour out his wrath as righteous vengeance, one, on those who oppress his people, and two, those who persist in unrepentance. So the the overall theme is that God's going to pour out his wrath as a righteous vengeance, and then the two sort of uh, avenues, the two sort of focuses that this passage gives us is, one, that that righteous vengeance will be poured out on those who oppress his people, and two, those who persist in unrepentance. We're going to take this in two weeks, and today we're just going to focus on that first one. So we can shorten it to this. God will pour out his righteous vengeance on those who oppress his people. That's the first emphasis that this passage gives us. God will pour out his righteous vengeance on those who oppress his people. So, in each of the judgments, we've seen the judgments are called things like seals and trumpets, and now here's, here's bowls, which leads us to ask the question, why that particular symbolism? What do, what do those symbols convey about the judgment? Well, the bowls, as we've seen, they're poured out. So the bowl is, you might think of it as like the content of the bowl is God's very wrath. So as it's then poured out, it is the execution of God's wrath. It is the display of God's wrath. It is a judgment. And as he pours out, as these bowls, the angels are pouring out God's wrath, what happens is then the consequences of that judgment. It's the ramifications. It's, it's the feeling of that judgment coming to bear. 
So if the symbolism of the seals, for example, though, was the breaking of the seal on a scroll, the scroll kind of representing God's written plan for history and the unveiling of that plan, and the trumpet, as we said, were kind of these war, um, like these warnings of, of the battle that's coming. It's a warning, in other words, sounding the alarm. The bowls, what's, what's uniquely conveyed in the idea of a bowl? Well, if we've been noticing how this use of the word bowl shows up elsewhere in the book, we see that bowls in the book of Revelation contain the prayers of God's people, specifically characterized as a suffering people. So look with me at chapter 5, verse 8, where the same word is used earlier. Chapter 5, verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls. Okay, in our passage today, they're also called golden. So, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So, these bowls are said to be full of incense, and the incense is symbolism for the prayer of the saints. So, it's these censers, like temple imagery, where you'd have these bowls full of, of incense that you would offer. And so the, he's saying this, this, this image here is explained to us as the incense represents the prayers of God's people. That as this incense rises up to God and he, he smells the pleasing aroma is the idea. So our prayers are a pleasing aroma to God. God delights in our prayers and he delights to answer them is the idea. We saw this as well in chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8 verses 3 and 4 if you'll get that with me. Now here it actually uses the explicit word censor. To be even more specific about the imagery. And another angel, verse 3, came and stood at the altar. Okay, so here's the altar. We also see altar show up in our passage. Stood at the altar with a golden censer, again golden. And he was given much incense. Again, again, there's incense. To offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angels. So here again, we see that the bowl represents with the incense, the censer, the prayer of the saints rising before God, who then responds in chapter 8, the trumpet judgments here. God responds to the prayers of his people with judgment on their behalf. And so the bowls here, we conclude, are, 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 they contain the prayers of God's suffering people. The bowls are the, the content of all the prayers of God's suffering people crying out for justice on their behalf. In other words, though, as we've seen, the bowls are also the wrath of God being poured out. The prayers of God's saints have thus been converted into the very wrath of God. The prayers of God's people praying for vengeance, praying for God's justice, praying for God's judgment, God is now going to take those prayers and he turns them into his very judgment to be executed. And we see that this judgment is specifically for the oppression, on account of the oppression of God's people. As we read the passage, one of the things you, you notice when you're doing Bible study is anytime in a, in a, in a passage... Uh, a section is kind of blocked off as being unique in its genre or its writing style, you should draw, you should, it's meant to draw your attention to that. So in this passage as well, verses 5, 6, and 7 each have poetry in the midst of everything else. And that should catch our attention. It should tell us, like, there's, there's an emphasis being made here. 
And what we see is that this judgment, according to, these, according to these verses that kind of grab our attention, we see that the judgment is specifically vengeance on those who have oppressed God's people. Verse 5 says, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. Notice verse 6 now. For they have, and the ESV here says, shed, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets. But literally, that word shed is the word poured out. The same word used elsewhere, where each of the seven angels pours out a bowl of judgment. Notice then what, what, what this is doing here. As the angels are pouring out God's judgment, why? What's the reason that judgment is being poured out on them? For, verse 6, for they have poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. In other words, you want to pour out the blood of the saints and the prophets, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to get the wrath of God poured out on you. You pour out the blood, God's got something to pour out in your direction. There's retribution. The punishment fits the crime as we continue. It says that you've, you've shed their blood, they've shed the blood, in other words, and you have given them blood to drink. You're going to pour out blood, Well, what you're going to get then in response is blood to drink, as this is the judgment where the rivers have been turned to blood. So blood for blood, there's a retribution principle going on here. And then in verse 17, we see that the altar gives its own cry in agreement. The angel over the waters just declared those things in verses 5 and 6, and now the altar agrees. Now, where did we see the altar previously? Well, the altar is the place of the suffering saints, the martyrs from the seal judgments. Turn to chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 with me. Chapter 6, 9 and 10. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. The same exact descriptions that we see in chapter 16. Same descriptions of God, that is. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? So again, same descriptions of God, same crying out for the blood that was spilt. And so here we see, in chapter 16 with the bowls, that the altar, the place of the martyrs in the book of Revelation, is, is a green. If in chapter 6, that's the place where they're crying out for God to bring vengeance, now in chapter 16, we see that they are declaring that that vengeance has finally come. And so we see that these bowls are the prayers of the suffering people praying that God would bring vengeance and God converting those prayers into actual acts of vengeance, answering their prayers. And this is a righteous judgment. It says, as, we, as we've already read, that it's just, it's holy, it's true, it's, it's just, it's righteous, in other words. It's the right thing. These judgments are not wrong, they're right. They're true. In other words, they're not, these aren't fabricated. He's not, he's not judging people for things that didn't actually happen. They meet up with reality. They display God's justice. There's this interesting line at the end of verse 6 where it says, it is what they deserve. And literally, in the Greek, it, is, it would say this. They are worthy. You've given them this judgment. They're worthy of the judgment. 
And if you remember what this word worthy, how this word worthy is used throughout the book, we saw in chapter 4, verse 11, that God, the one on the throne, is worthy to be praised because he created all things. The lamb is worthy to open the scroll because he's been slain and he's redeemed the kingdom, the very content of the scroll. We've seen that believers in the opening chapters, in chapter 3, verse 4, that the church there of the faithful believers are said to be worthy. God has made them worthy. He's fitted them for the reward of salvation. And now, ironically here, those who oppress God's people, they're worthy too. But what are they worthy for? They're worthy for judgment. Judgment is what they deserve. It's what's fitting for them. And so all these themes about the oppression of God's people and God delivering his oppressed people by answering their prayers, this fits then what we see in this passage of these themes of Exodus, right? We see themes of Exodus heavy in this passage, where the judgments, the bulls are called plagues, reminiscent of the plagues in Egypt. The, the, these plagues, they resemble the plagues in Egypt. There's, there's sores, or like the boils of the Egyptian plagues. The river and the sea is turned to blood. There's a plague of darkness. There's frogs. There's lightning and hail. All these things, exactly the same sort of plagues that happened in the book of Exodus. We even get this mention of a tent of witness or the tabernacle from that time period in history. And God's terrifying holy presence, allusions to Sinai with lightning flashing and fire, just like we saw in Exodus 19 when God is present at Mount Sinai. So there's all these sort of overtones of the Exodus, which makes sense because what was happening in the Exodus? God was delivering his oppressed people. His people were crying for God to save them, and God hears their cry, and he saves them through the judgment of their enemies. This is the same thing we saw in chapter 15, 3, or 2 through 4, the very end of the section that Dan just preached, where we have the song of Moses, alluding to Exodus 15. The song of Moses in the section right before this. In Exodus 15, that's a song that praises when God delivered them through the Red Sea. And the song declares God has saved his people through the judgment of their enemies. This is the song of Moses and the Lamb now. That exodus pointed to the greater exodus to come, namely what Jesus would achieve for us here. Now, I might sense that some of us are feeling squeamish right now. This is not a, uh, Dan and I were talking about themes in scripture that are, not very, that are not very popular in our culture. I would say this one probably is in the top ten. Um, it, it goes up there pretty high. God judging the oppressors of his people. And so I think it's the appropriate question. We were studying this on Monday for text group. And the question was raised, I think helpfully, are these appropriate prayers? Like, are these prayers that God's people should be praying? If these are judgments that were they were, these are prayers that were converted into judgments. God is answering these prayers by judgment. Is that actually an appropriate thing to pray, that God would actually bring vengeance on the oppressors of God's people? Well, three observations. One, first of all, I think it's helpful to imagine these prayers from the context of someone who is actually facing great and horrendous persecution. There's a Croatian theologian um, who grew up in Croatia, and went through terrible wars there in Yugoslavia at the time and, and experienced ethnic cleansing. 
And he reflects, he's done a lot of theological reflection on the nature of having gone through that experience growing up there. And he says this. He says, for months now, the notorious Serbian fighters called the uh, Setniks, they have been sowing desolation in my native country, herding people into concentration camps, raping women, burning down churches, and destroying cities. In a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end of violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. In other words, Wolf makes the observation that this perceived problem we sometimes have with the idea of divine vengeance, it typically only exists in places that are relatively free from severe forms of injustice. They, it tends, this, this sort of problem only tends to exist in cushier contexts. So Wolf continues, he says, Imagine that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where he delivered these words himself. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered and then buried and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their, their throats slit. Soon, you will discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of this sort of thesis, that, that we should find solace, in other words, in the fact that God is a God, supposedly, who wouldn't execute judgment. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, such a thesis will invariably die. The second observation with that, then, is that it's good to keep in mind these judgments are described as just. It's not wrong to pray, then, for something that is actually righteous. If, these, if, if oppressors deserve the judgment and it is a righteous judgment, it is not wrong to pray for God to pour out what is, in fact, righteous. And this isn't the only place we get songs like this. We get the, a whole list of imprecatory psalms in the Old Testament where God's people are crying out. Imprecatory means curse. It's God's people crying out for the curses upon their enemies who deserve judgment. Not them carrying out the judgment, but for God to carry out the judgment. It's his prerogatory. He's God. He has the right to judge. Lastly, though, I think that we, we, can, we ought to have a two-prong approach to this as well that either justice will be carried out in the final judgment, and we can pray for that, but also judgment can be carried out on Christ in the atonement, and we pray for that for our enemies as well. Some of you may be familiar with Rachel Denhollander. Um, if not, she was a gymnast in the U U U.S. gymnastics program who was kind of the forerunner in leading to Larry Nasser's conviction of uh, sexually assaulting, I think it was like over 250 girls in the U.S. gymnastics program. And she's a lawyer and she testified in the courtroom quite famously at this point. Um, so she's done a lot of work in that area. And this is, let me read a quote from her testimony in the courtroom to Larry Nassar that day. She said to him, in our earlier hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. But Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. 
It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you speak, speak carries, of which you speak, carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it, it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which is what you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. And so I think she models well that posture of, of, on the one hand, we, of course, as a people who have been forgiven ourselves, we long to forgive others, we long to see others forgiven as well. That's the missionary heart of the gospel and the church. As the parable of the man forgiven of his debt, we can't hold grudges against people when we ourselves have been forgiven way, way more than anyone has ever wronged us. And yet at the same time, we can simultaneously long for God's judgment on evil to be executed. That is a good as well. Both of those are good things to pray for. Justice, whether poured out in the final judgment or in the atonement of Christ. But then with that, it kind of still raises a question, even if we understand these to be appropriate prayers, we still may wonder, you know, does this sort of thing apply to us? Like, what, does this passage have anything to do with me? Maybe sort of if we feel that we kind of live in an environment where we don't really face that sort of oppression? Well, first of all, I think it's worth noting that some of us here probably do know evil and suffering personally. We shouldn't assume that, there, that everyone here has, hasn't had experiences in their life that deserve significant vengeance from God. The other thing, too, is that we, we ought, even if you have had a cushier life and you, it, maybe you can't personally relate to this as much, you ought to still relate to it in the sense that you still live in a world where evil is wreaking havoc, even if not on you, on other people who are image bearers of God. We ought to ache over evil, even if it's not personally experienced by us. And we also, we have solidarity with believers across the world who do face evil. So even if it's not us, it's our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, the global church. We pray for their vengeance on their behalf. And finally, we shouldn't think that oppression is always necessarily like merely the most egregious forms of like physical persecution and martyrdom. Oppression can also exist in smaller sort of forms, like on a continuum of, of things like slander, being looked down upon, uh, facing the loss of social status. Even with those things, we still long for the day where truth will be vindicated, when the, the, when the truly right side of history will win out. And so, again, the, the, the overall message here of this passage is that God will pour out his righteous vengeance on those who oppress his people. This is, as we, we have our, our sermon title, normally the picture's up there, that's why I turned around, but as we have our sermon title, typically, it is Reality Unveiled, Empowered for Patient endurance. 
And so reality unveiled is sort of what the book discloses to us, and that's what we've seen here. What is, what is unveiled here in this passage? It's that God will bring righteous vengeance on those who oppress his people. The question then is, how does that reality unveiled now empower us for patient endurance? Okay, how does this message empower me, empower you in our Christian lives of patient endurance? How does it empower us to conquer to the end? I have three things I'd like to, to uh, offer. First, it shows, us, it shows us a reality of God's judgment that satisfies our longing for justice. It satisfies our deep longing for justice. We have a longing for justice. I think of the book of Ecclesiastes, which we preached maybe a year or so ago, where it talks about how justice is not actually carried out, that the oppressed go on being oppressed, and the oppressors, they just seem to get away with it. And the book calls this vanity. Like, that doesn't seem to be the way things should work. You act righteously, it seems like you should be rewarded. You act wrong, you oppress people, it seems you should be punished. That's vanity. It doesn't come out the way it seems like it should. But according to this passage, there will come a day when things will be made right. One of my favorite passages in the Lord of the Rings trilogy is this scene where after the ring is destroyed at Mount Doom, Sam Gamgee wakes up from his sleep and he's shocked. He kind of is in a daze and he's shocked to discover that somehow he is still alive. And when he wakes up, he kind of in his stupor, he wakes up shocked to see Gandalf And when he sees Gandalf, he says, what happened to the world? Is everything sad now going to become untrue? And that's the hope that we have. That one day when Jesus comes, all things sad will become untrue. Not just that good will be the end, but it will be as if all the wrongs will then be righted. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce says this. He says, some say of temporal suffering, the, the suffering in this life. They say, no future bliss, no future good can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. Or as Paul himself says in the New Testament, that the, the future glory that awaits us in Romans 8, is not worth, or the present suffering is not worth comparing to the future glory that awaits God's people. It's not even worth making the comparison. See, if we don't have sight of this, this final judgment where all is made right, we can easily, think about the practical ramifications in the Christian life, we can easily just become despairing. We We can be tempted to kind of give up. We ask that question, you know, the fair weather Christian, is it worth it? Is this Christian life worth it if things are not going to, if the wrongs are not going to be righted? If truth does not win out in the end? We give up or we give in to culture. We give in to worldly ideas. We give in to the beast, the false prophet, etc. We become a citizen of Babylon the harlot. But this vision, this reality unveiled, makes persevering worth it. When the outcome of living faithfully for God seems only to be hardship, we can be encouraged that there is a more sure, eternal outcome that awaits us. We don't have to fear what we may lose or face in this life on account of following Christ. We can live boldly knowing that all wrongs or hardships that we might face are merely temporary 
and it will eventually give way to an eternal glory and joy in Christ. And so this enables us, not only as individual people, but as a church, to carry out our mission with perseverance, to continue boldly, not timidly, not wavering, wondering what the outcome will be. We know the outcome. We press forward strongly. And imagine what sort of church we would be if this vision would just seep down into our hearts with the firmest sort of conviction. We would be willing to endure anything. Our priorities would be reshaped. And we would press forward with a perseverance to make maturing followers of Jesus by the power of his gospel. Secondly, this reality enables us to patiently endure. As the book calls for a conquering. A conquering that is sort of the opposite of what you might think that word means. It's actually conquering by faithfully suffering. Even to the point of death. Whatever requires of us, we, 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 we suffer. It enables us to conquer. And I think really this passage taps into the logic that we see elsewhere in the New Testament of this sort of this ability to, to practice a nonviolent, non-retaliation, no matter what we face. Like in passages like Romans 12 or 1 Peter 2, the idea here is that divine vengeance is what enables our non-vengeance. Divine vengeance is what enables us not to take vengeance ourselves. We don't need to take vengeance because vengeance is God's. So in a passage like Romans 12, this is the same sort of logic elsewhere in the New Testament. Paul says, be patient in tribulation. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse them. When they curse, you don't curse back. You bless them. You repay no one evil for evil. You, you, you don't overcome evil by evil. Don't fight fire with fire, but overcome evil with good. Beloved, beloved, never avenge yourself. How? Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We don't repay because we know God will repay. And then he continues out, not only saying that God is the avenger, but even in that passage in Romans 13, it then calls the government, the state, the one who wields a sword and is an avenger. We don't need to take vengeance on ourselves because God has instituted things like the state and he's well, he himself exists to carry out vengeance. Or 1 Peter 2, For this you have been called believers, because Christ also suffered, leaving you as an example. The, the very model of Christ carrying this out in his own life is then a pattern for believers, so that we might follow in his steps. For when Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what? He continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. God didn't need to, or Christ didn't need to retaliate. Why? Because he entrusted himself to the one who would ultimately bring about justice, his father. And so this challenges our framework that often many of us have where we sort of think we need to, we need to kind of establish justice here and now. We need to avenge ourselves. We need to set things straight for ourselves in this life. But the point then is that we can endure even in the face of injustice and persecution, or whatever comes our way, knowing that the righting of all injustices is in God's hands. And then thirdly and lastly, this passage shows that our prayers are effective in bringing about God's purposes of redemption. 
You see, our, our prayers in this passage, they, they are depicted as being converted into divine action for his purposes of salvation through judgment. Our prayers do things. Prayer is held up as an incredibly valuable thing. It's the engine for, for, the, for the movement of redemptive history in God's economy. Tim Chester, he encourages us to imagine our prayers in these bowls one day to be answered in full. He says this. He says, One day our prayers will be poured out before the throne and will unleash the renewal of all things. When you pray for justice, the ultimate answer may be the final judgment. When you pray for peace, the ultimate answer may be the reign of the Lamb. When you pray for healing, the ultimate answer may be a resurrected body. When you pray for joy, the ultimate answer may be the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so it's worth asking ourselves, what do we believe about prayer? What do our actions, our behaviors, and our habits say we believe about prayer? Not just what we say on paper. We have it in our philosophy and ministry, our purpose and pursuits, that we value prayer. We can write that down. We can all agree to it. But I'm preaching to myself here, as well as you, what do our actions actually say about what we believe about prayer? Prayer actually does things. God uses our prayer. He answers them. If not in this life, he will bring about his kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That will actually occur. And so we ought to go to prayer believing that God actually hears us and answers. And all this is true because we have the hope that the reality of this passage that we've been talking about, God bringing about his vengeance, is something that will be realized in the person of Christ when Christ comes again. That Christ is the Redeemer. Christ is the Avenger. According to Revelation 19, chapter 11 and following, we see Christ as the one riding on the white horse with judgment as a sword coming out of his mouth. Christ will come and he will bring these realities to bear. He owns the final exodus. It's not just the song of Moses. It's now also the song of the Lamb, as we saw. This exodus is his to carry out. Now, Oftentimes in our culture, we, in as much that it is good news, I think oftentimes we struggle with this. We oftentimes think it's bad news because we struggle with the idea of a God of judgment. We would rather like to think of God as unjudging. God is the great, you know, pie in the sky who allows us to kind of do whatever we want. He just wants us to be happy, and happiness is however we define it. In our culture, we, we kind of hold up non-judgmentalism as a virtue to practice with each other. And in as much as we like to make a God in our own image, we kind of project that onto God and say, well, I don't want, to, I don't want people judging me. I'm not going to judge them. So, of course, a God who is good, based on how I conceive of good, he's not going to be a God who judges. And so we, we kind of, well, of course, God's not going to judge. And although we say that, and we, we kind of believe those things, at the same time, I think at our core, we also ache for justice. We, we, we do agree for the need for judgment, that only the existence of a righteous and judging God can actually meet. Whether we want to agree to it or not, we, we, so we sort of convey that we, we kind of do believe it. We live as if we believe a God of judgment exists, even at the same time we deny it. You see, we don't actually want to live in a world without judgment. We don't. We want righteousness poured out on evil. But then we're left to reckon with a God who actually will judge. 
And what about when that, justi- when that justice comes from the injustices that we've committed? Tim Chester, who I mentioned before, says this. He says, sometimes people ask, why doesn't God do something about suffering? But what would it take for God to get rid of suffering and its causes? Have you ever caused someone to suffer? It is all well and good crying out for justice, but none of us have always done right by other people. The coming of God's wrath means that we all face God's judgment. We long for a world in which there are standards of right and wrong. The problem is that we do not always want to live by those standards ourselves. We long for a world in which justice is done, but we want God to make an exception for us. But we cannot have it both ways. We long for justice, but when God comes in judgment, it will mean judgment for you and me. But of course, as, as believers, you know with me that the good news at the end of that, that quote comes in and says, listen, the final judgment that awaits all injustices has already happened for the believer in Jesus who took that judgment for us. The judgment has fallen on Jesus in our place. And just as this passage reflects themes of the exodus of God, his strong arm delivering his people through the judgment of oppressors, there's also this other significant image in the exodus, which is the Passover lamb, which as God pours out his judgment on people who deserve it, evil people, well, those Hebrews, they're not sinless either. And so he instructs the Hebrews to a sacrificial lamb to put the blood over the doorposts so that as the angel of death comes, the judgment would pass over them. You see, we all deserve God's judgment. The difference between the Hebrew and the Egyptian wasn't that the Hebrews were, were good and the Egyptians weren't. We all deserve God's judgment. But those who find refuge in the lamb of Jesus, the true Passover lamb, the Passover lamb was just a picture of the greater exodus, Those who find refuge in Jesus by trusting in him, praise God, that judgment has now fallen on him. The judgment passes over us because it was executed on Jesus. That's what the cross teaches us. That's what we believe as Christians, that Jesus died on the cross bearing the judgment that we deserved so that we can become the righteousness of God, actually having the righteousness of Christ gifted to us. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, This is what we're celebrating every week. We celebrate the gospel because we need to be reminded of it. We are forgetful people. We get off off track. We we start to depend on our own righteousness. We lose sight of things. This world is a difficult place. We're in a tribulation, John says. We need to remember the gospel every week. And let me encourage you. Come to Christ with all of your sin. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, sometimes I think we can... We can have this tendency to, we know that our sin is displeasing to God, and it is. God obviously sent his, it was so displeasing that it took the very death of Christ to pay for it. And so sometimes, though, we can, we can know how displeasing our sin is to God, that we can feel this shame in approaching God. I'm not worthy of, of, of receiving this forgiveness depicted in the Lord's Supper. That's true. But God is the one inviting you to the table this morning. Not, not ultimately me, not ultimately Crossway. God ordained the Lord's Supper to invite you as a sinner. The Lord's Supper isn't for perfect people. It's not, well, you have to be good enough to kind of deserve the Lord's Supper. The whole premise of the Lord's Supper is that none of us deserve it. That's, that's what it's communicating. You need to be redeemed of your sins. I'm reading a book by Richard uh, Sibbs, a, a well-known Puritan, 
called The Bruised Reed, where he talks about this. He says, what a support to our faith is this, that the God, the, the God the Father, the very party who is offended by our sins, is so pleased with the work of redemption. It's God. God's the one who, who, who takes the most offense at our sin, and yet he's the one who is the most pleased with Christ's work of redemption to cover that sin. Come to Christ, not as one who needs to be ashamed of of the wrong that you did this week, but come to Christ knowing that Christ delights. He doesn't delight in your sin, but he delights in his office as the Savior of your sin. He delights to forgive you of your sin. And so you can come to Christ this morning. Christ is ultimately the host of the supper. It's the Lord's supper. It's Christ's supper. So you come and as you partake this morning, Christ, this is a covenant sign that he has given us to seal those very promises on our hearts. By faith, when you receive this, you receive that promise from Christ, that those who believe receive the things depicted in the supper, his body and blood, his death for you.